something in the room right now. I'm feeling, sensing authentic revival is stirring in the hearts of some. Some. Let me be clear with that. Some. Some of you wouldn't know what revival is if it burned you on the butt. You know how to jump, but you don't know how to sustain it. But I feel authentic revival in the room right now. Can I tell you the marker? This, this one's for free. It's not part of my message. But let me, can I tell you the marker for authentic revival in the room? It's not when worship goes twice as long as it was scheduled to. That's not revival. It's not where everyone jumps up and shouts a little longer than they normally do. That's not revival. It's not where the church service goes twice as long as it normally goes. That is not revival. Revival is when you stand in the presence of a holy God and you realize that you are not as holy as him. And there is a need and a desire for you to become like him. And the first sign of revival is a deep call of repentance on your heart. It's where you realize I need him desperately because I see myself. Not that you're wretched. Not that you're wretched, but just you are not as holy as he is. And when compared against his holiness, when you stand in the presence of God, like Isaiah in chapter six, when he stood in the presence of God, he said that I might die. I am a man of unclean lips. To receive a word from the God was different than standing in his presence. And when he stood in his presence, the first thing that came out of his mouth was a repentant heart. And a man like that can carry a message for God into all the world. So the true sign of revival is when there is a repentant heart. When there is a cry and a need for holiness. A need for authentic revival to stir us and rid us, and cleanse us, and purify us, and prepare us for the groom to arrive. The mikvah was a washing of the bride before her groom would come to claim her in ancient times in Israel. The groom would come and claim her, but she had to go through a mikvah, a baptism, a washing to remain clean for the, for the groom. When the groom begins to draw near or you suspect that the groom could be drawing near, the bride would go and cleanse herself to make sure she was clean and ready for her groom. That is a sign of revival when there is a desperation for us to begin to nest, right? For us to begin to prepare and groom and prepare and say, my God is coming. And when he encounters me, I want to be ready for it. I don't want to be caught off guard when he shows up. I'm not talking about the, the, the end times. I'm not talking about being caught up in the clouds. I'm talking about his presence being caught up right now in this room. So many people in the church, they're, they're, they're waiting on Jesus to come back in the second coming. I got news for you. It's like the, uh, like the billionth coming of Jesus because he shows up whenever we worship him. He shows up whenever we glorify him. He shows up wherever we gather with two or more. He's in the midst. 
I don't know what we're waiting on for him to show up. Well, when Jesus comes back, he's here right now. But some of us have so much difficulty recognizing when Jesus is standing in the room. When Jesus' presence is in the room. You know, we don't even have his physical presence anymore. And we struggle with that. And it's amazing to me. Look, I'm going to let you off the hook a little bit. Because there was a lot of people who had the physical presence of Jesus in their life. Walking with them 2,000 years ago. And they still couldn't see who he was. They still couldn't recognize what was in front of them. So I'm letting you off the hook a little bit. Blessed are they that see and believe, but even more blessed are those that have never seen and believe. So we get to be more blessed as we learn how to believe without ever really seeing. Here's the amazing thing. That scripture might be confusing to you. Here's what it doesn't mean. Blessed are those that never see. See, it's blessed are those that haven't seen. What happens is when you believe and you haven't seen, then you see. I don't have to walk without seeing because I've seen. I've seen him heal the sick. I've seen him raise the dead. I've seen him do the miraculous. I've seen him dissolve metal. I've seen him cure cancer. I've seen his hand move. I've seen him have miraculous checks show up out of nowhere. Amen? Some of you don't believe the healing, but someone gets a $100,000 check. You're like, my faith is, uh, Lord, do it to me. Do it again. Do it again. Blessed are those that see. But so many walked with Jesus and they did not see. They did not see who he was. They did not understand. So much so that the same people that laid palm branches at Jesus' feet a week later are crying out, crucify him. They just can't see who he is. I, I can't imagine what that must have been like. See, because here's the truth. I can get up here and preach a fluffy gospel. I can get up here and declare to you, everything's fine, everything's great, you're perfect the way you are. But the reality is that some of you have a call and plan and purpose of God on your life that you need to be pushed a little bit into. I don't want you to walk into obscurity feeling good about it. I want you to walk in your plan and your purpose. But it's amazing to me how many people are so uncomfortable with who Jesus is. It's amazing to me that we live in a world that has so much vitriol and hate for the love of God. It seems to me counterintuitive when I process this. A Jesus who loves you and died for you, that that message would make you uncomfortable. But there are so many people in the world who are uncomfortable with the reality that God loves them. Jesus came preaching the kingdom of God. He came preaching the love of God. He came and said the greatest commandment, love God and love your neighbor. Why would that make somebody so uncomfortable yet the, Lord, the world is uncomfortable with the level of love they have never experienced? They were so uncomfortable with the love of God that they chose a murderous rebel named Barabbas over Jesus who came to set them free. I want you to picture this moment with Pontius Pilate standing there saying one of these men can go free and the other one 
we will execute. Jesus, who seems to have done nothing but tell you he loves you and that God loves you and he has more for your life. And Barabbas, who is a rebel who has murdered. That the Jews of that time would be more comfortable releasing a murderer back into the streets and dark alleys of the city. How many of you know that a murderer is probably going to murder again? He was a rebel. See, he wasn't a psychopath. Barabbas wasn't a psychopath. He was a rebel. He was stirring up rebellion. He was a man on a mission with a cause. He's going to keep going. That the nation of Israel was more comfortable with a murderer wandering the streets than with the love of God. Or have we gotten to that place where hearing the love of God, sharing the love of God makes us more uncomfortable? So many of us can't even share our faith because we get uncomfortable. Because we're so afraid of the world getting uncomfortable. And they will. Let me just say this. For some reason, unbeknownst to me that I can't quite fathom yet, God wanting to heal people makes people uncomfortable. God wanting to show up and encounter you makes people uncomfortable. Jesus would heal people and the Pharisees would get really uncomfortable. Is it a little warm in here? Good. You're not comfortable. Get out of the comfortable. Let me say it a little differently than that. Get out of the complacent. Because when you encounter the love of God, though the world would be uncomfortable, you can be comfortable without being complacent. See, because Jesus says that he sends his spirit, the comforter, to you. That's not a blanket. Some of you are like, it's a weighted blanket. Just wraps me up all snugly. That Jesus comes to bring comfort so that you can do things that are uncomfortable. So that you can walk into uncomfortable places. But we live in that world where a murderous rebel is more comfortable to roam the streets than to hear Jesus say that he's come to set the captives free. You know, as I was pondering what I wanted to say today, I was thinking about the idea that we just finished a men's conference. You know, we had a women's conference a little bit ago, but we had our men's conference and the men, you know, took a couple extra days. The women were all in day one, right? They were birthing stuff day one. They were hollering and screaming and they're like, you know, rolling, holy rollers instantly. They're like, right? Like a 12-year-old kid in an amusement park. Every ride, ah! right? They're coming up for prayer. Whee! The men are like, oh. they got there. It just took them a little bit longer. I, I don't know about you, but I mean, I just don't think timidity is a manly character trait. I don't know what happened to our men that timidity became the standard character trait of men in the church today. But here's the reality is that 90% of what gets done in the church gets done by the ladies. Not just our church, every church. We're better. We're like 70. But it gets done by the ladies, and I'm contemplating this idea that we live in a world 
where women are quicker to grab hold of the supernatural power of God, to grab hold of the love of God, while our men are timid and withdrawn and stand off from it. I'm like, Lord, why is it so hard to get men committed? You saw Jesus with 12 powerful men, 120 that gathered, women included, but 12 powerful men that went out and changed the world. And I said, today, the women have to drag the men into church most of the time. We have cowardly men for the kingdom. And if I'm stepping on your toes, that's you stepping on your toes because there's powerful men in this room. So if that hurt your feelings, that's you. That's the conviction of the Holy Spirit, amen? Amen. That's on you. Because there's some in here going, yeah, they need to step up like me. He's right, he's right. Some of you are like, that's mean, that's you. That's you because I didn't point at you. But I'm contemplating the idea of why it is that our men are the ones always withdrawn and they're the ones that take a while to come into. Women are so much more dominant in their commitment to God. And I realized something. I'm gonna unstep the toes, you ready? Take the pressure off. I realized something. That a woman's number one core need is to be loved. Right? We all have different love languages, okay? We got different expressions of love. But a woman's core, number one need in her life is to be loved. A man, on the other hand, ladies, take a listen to this. A man, on the other hand's core need is not to be loved, it's to be respected. They want to know that you value and honor them. Respect is the number one need that a man has. And what happens is, is that many times women will say, well, I'll give him respect when he shows me some love. And men will do the same thing. Well, I'll love her when she starts respecting me a little bit. And so we end up depriving each other of our core need. But when it comes to our faith, what we've done is that we've, we, we, we don't realize how the gospel affects and how our messaging has affected a generation of men. This is not a message just for men. I'm going somewhere deep, but I need to contemplate and break and, and chase this for just a second, okay? It's a rabbit that needs to be shot, skinned and eaten for a moment, okay? But the biggest need is a woman to love. And we've spent decades now preaching a gospel of Jesus loves you. But we don't have the same narrative for our men. So the women come into church and they say, that's my number one need. I just want to be loved. And you're telling me that Jesus, that God loved me so much. He so loved the world that he gave his only son. The message and gospel of love resonates with our ladies. But our men's core need is left hollowed. Because our need is to be respected. And we read that scripture, God is no respecter of persons. You lucky he likes you. That's the way us men process it. And so that need of respect has been a vacuum in the church. And so our men are withdrawn because they're like, yeah, yeah, we know. Jesus loves me. Hug him, kiss him. You keep singing all these songs about kissing a dude. I'm uncomfortable. I got some guys in the room, right? The idea of being a bride is a little bit uncomfortable. We're like, ah, yeah. Right? You want to wear a wedding dress? We'll get you in a nice little dress. We'll do a little sermon illustration about becoming the bride. Is that cool? I know we got some prom dresses probably left over in the other room. We good with that, William? You are not good with that. So that makes you a little uncomfortable, right? I'm not going to put you in a dress because I respect you, William. 
So we don't have a culture of respect. Let me give that to you. While God is no respecter of persons, he is a God of honor. And honor is a form of respect. When you honor someone, when you show honor, we don't teach a culture of honor in the church anymore. So our men don't come in getting a need met that says that there is honor. So the love of God is very evident and available in the gospel through our relationship with Christ. That's just true. They have their needs met. So we, we have no supernatural respect from God. And we lose natural respect of the world. Here's the problem. We get no supernatural respect from God, but walking into Christianity means we'll lose the respect of the world. And so our men are stuck in a conundrum. If I walk into Christianity, I'll be mocked, made fun of, and ridiculed. I'll be called weak and, and purposeless. Oh, you're just gonna go kiss Jesus. Like, that's what the world will do. So a man walking in knows that to walk in to church and give his life to church means his core need is not met and that the world will take the need he does have met away from him. And that's why our men were strained. Some of you guys thought I was going to beat you men up. You didn't know I was going to set you free. Amen? Some of your men should be like, amen, okay. I like where you're going now. A minute ago, I, was, I wasn't really sure. I was like, all right, I got that meeting I got to get to. So we know that walking in here means we'll lose respect because we'll be ridiculed for our belief in Jesus, for following the way. This leaves our men in an identity crisis management situation where seemingly our greatest compulsory need to be respected is left in limbo. So we focus so heavy on this gospel of love over the last few decades that we've lost our men in that. We haven't been taught a culture of honor a culture of power, of authority, of purpose, of advancement, and of inheritance. We have a groom, Jesus the lover, but we've missed God the Father, telling his sons that they are worthy of inheritance. Men, can I say something to you? You are powerful men of God, capable of leading your family into the glory of the promises of God on your life, you have an inheritance that your father has looked on you and said, you are my son, well done. I can tell you this, when a father tells his son, well done, I'm proud of you, you're strong, you're capable, that's the respect we're looking for. When a father says, man, you're a man now, and I'm proud of the man you become, that's respect. And our father in heaven does that for men. So ladies, God loves you. Men, God thinks you're awesome. He thinks you're capable, you're powerful, you're able, and there is an inheritance as a son. You are a good son and worthy of inheritance. That was the message of Jesus to the prodigal son, where the father said, this is my son, and nothing is going to take that away from me. When you walk in here, you know that God loves you, but that there's honor and power and authority and inheritance available to you. And so we need to start teaching and explaining the concept of inheritance and advancement. I, I don't know any man that would come in here and say, I would love it if someone just told me I was a weakling. That would be really nice, right? Not every boy wants to fight everybody, okay? Not every boy wants to wrestle or fight or any of that, but not a single of them, one of them want to be beat. I guarantee you, 
if I, if I take a poll, there's some of you like, oh, I love to wrestle around and rough house and all that. Some of you be like, no, I don't like it. I guarantee you the reason why most of them don't like it is because they think they'll lose. I guarantee you that if you ask enough men to be honest, the only reason they wouldn't like a little rough house is because they think they'll lose. Most of the time. So it goes to a core identity issue. I'm not suggesting we need to get, although we do have jujitsu mats under this altar. I'm just saying. So we could do a really good sermon illustration in a moment here. Um, but men need to know that there's inheritance, there's power, there's purpose. But inheritance comes from advancement. Everyone say advancement. Inheritance comes from advancement. There has to be a gospel of advancement once again. There has to be a gospel of multiplying like I've been talking about. There has to be a gospel where we begin to move into promise. But here's the thing. We need to be able to uh, step into it. But we need to understand it's available to us. A lot of times we just don't know because it hasn't been revealed to us. See, there is a purpose and a plan that God has and there are mysteries that God has. And so we've got the love thing down. There's no mystery to the love of God. Everyone knows he loves us, right? Maybe you don't believe it, but there's no mystery. We're not going, what does it really mean to love? It's not a hard concept to grasp, but God wants to take us into deeper revelation of mysteries in order to understand the promises and inheritance that he has for us. Did you know the inherit, one of the inheritance that God has for you is that there is deep and profound supernatural power available to you right now? That's an inheritance. It's a promise that Jesus said, I have to go so that I might send my spirit that you will do greater works than me. That's a promise of inheritance. Amen? Amen? Greater works are your inheritance. They belong to you. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be like, Lord, I did lesser works. It was awesome. How are you doing right now? Oh, doing really good, man. This week I did a couple of lesser works. It was pretty good. This afternoon I might do some average works, but, you know, still seeing how the day goes. Anybody? Pastor Ren, how was your trip to PA? Oh, it's pretty average. It's great. It's pretty average. What'd you do? Ah, you know, I prophesied like I normally do. I don't want to ever come home with that. I don't want to ever come home and say, I met the status quo. I want the greater. Is there anyone in here that just says, I want status quo? Be honest. You can be honest. I'm like, nah, I'm just, I'm just looking for a life in the recliner. That's all I really want. I got enough duct tape to fix every hole for the rest of my life. We are good. Got a storage box. I am good. I paid up my Netflix. Just going to camp out. Anybody want that life? Some of you are like, well, I mean, kind of. <laughs> I, I, I guess I'm just a little different. I went to PA and everyone's asking me, how was your trip to PA? And I was like, <laughs> I didn't get to do enough. Like, I didn't get to do enough ministry. I wasn't on mission. I got to preach that Sunday morning at a house church. My son goes to a house church and the house church found out it was coming and they're like, would you minister to us while you're here? And I'm like, sure. So I got to do, I got to be me. I got to pour out. I got to be me. And I'm like, oh, oh I can't handle this vacation because I'm not doing greater works and there is a desire inside of me because I'm sold out for the kingdom of God to advance the kingdom of God. And if I'm not advancing the kingdom of God, there's something in me that's crying out and says, rise up, man of God. 
Rise up and claim your inheritance. Rise up into advancement. Rise up into promise. I don't want to be in a desert. I want to be in a promise. And I want to move into my promises. And when I'm standing still, I can't be moving. And I can't stand standing still. Stop standing still. I want the deeper things. I want the mystery. I want the greater Deuteronomy 29, 29 says this, the secret things belong to the Lord, our God, but it's things revealed belong to us and our sons forever that we may observe all the words of the law. I want you to listen. The secret things belong to the Lord. There are things that are mysteries, deep, profound things that we can get that are deeper and greater revelation that do not yet belong to us, but the promise is for us. But the things revealed belong to us and our sons forever. It means when we discover a mystery, it becomes not just ours, but our inheritance to our sons and our daughters. I don't know about you, but I want a little more discovery so I can have a little bit more inheritance to give away. So inheritance is key. But discovering the inheritance, it has to be dug up. See, God has left us treasures in his word that when we dig them up, unlock us into greater things in our future and we can give them away to a generation. And the problem is, is that we've had generations of past revival, past movements of God, past healings, past things that have happened to us and we don't pass them on as inheritance. They pass. What has happened in the past passes away because we don't transfer it. We don't give it away as an inheritance. We keep it for ourselves. Oh, that's my, that's my revelation. That's my book I'm going to write. Can you imagine Isaiah coming back and saying, I had an encounter in the throne room and there were angels with six wings. Ooh, what a good book this is going to make. I'm going to be a best-selling author because I got a revelation. There has to be a call of advancement and inheritance that says, Lord, you've given me a revelation. It's for me and my sons. But what's happened in previous generations is we've had powerful moves of God in the church that died with the church, that died with the man of God. There was no inheritance being passed on. And so what happens is, is that the next generation has to redig the well again. The next generation has to rediscover everything that was already discovered. And it seems like that happens over and over in the word of God. Hebrews, the Hebrew children, they would go through cycles where they would lose the word of God and have to rediscover it. And they'd fall into idolatry and they'd have to rediscover who God was again. It happened over and over again. And that's what happened. Can you imagine a society that every time we built a computer, they just came the next generation, wiped everything back to the stone age, and we had to start all over again with a calculator. Mine would keep working. You know, these computers, they did, the wheel just spins. My calculator, two plus two, four, instantly. Never any buffering will. So we could build stuff better. But can you imagine having to restart over? Every generation builds off the previous generation. You want to build a better computer? You just go get better chips. But somebody made those chips. Somebody perfected the chip that you're using. Somebody made the tool to make the chip. Somebody figured out how to mine the ore from the ground to make that metal, to make the tool, to make the chip. And we build off previous generations. But in the kingdom, in the church, what we do is we have movements and we don't have moments where we pass inheritance. And so we don't build off of anything. We lose it and we have to rediscover it. Oh, you know, in Azusa Street, it's amazing to me how much of church history has just wiped away and we know nothing about it. 
I talk to cessationists all the time. Those are people that don't believe the gifts are for today. And I look at them and I'm like, have you ever read anything about church history? Well, no. Well, that's why you don't believe that. Nobody passed on your inheritance to you. Nobody told you that for the first three centuries after Jesus, that it's recorded hundreds and thousands of recordings from church fathers outside the Bible talking about the signs, wonders, and miracles that happened. The power of God moving. Well, I just don't believe in all that stuff. You know, it, 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 uh, uh, it was all added later on. Uh, you know, uh, uh, Constantine added all of that later on in the 300s. You know, he put all of that in. Really? That's interesting. Because I just saw an archaeological dig in Israel. Uh, you know, this, I don't believe Jesus is Lord. That's the, I've heard this one before, if anybody heard this. I don't believe Jesus is Lord. Constantine added that. That was added at the Council of Nicaea. This is what a lot of people have said. That was added later. The first century Christians and second century Christians didn't believe Jesus was Lord. That was made up later after hundreds of years. I've heard that one. Except that uh, Israel just did an archaeological dig uh, on a place called Megiddo. Does anybody ever heard of Megiddo before? Don't get excited. It's not the end times. It's at Megiddo prison. Did you know there's a prison in Megiddo? And, and, and in the yard there, they've done an excavation site because they stumbled on something and they found the floor, the, the actual, uh, all the small little tiles. What's it called when you, uh, the, when you do all the little tiny tiles? Mosaic, thank you. Uh, no, I'll say it like the Hebrews, mosaic. It's a mosaic. It's a mosaic on the ground. And uh, they, they, they translated the mosaic that's on the ground there and it's dated from 200 A.D., 200 AD. They said 100 years before Christianity became legal in Rome, this is there. They dug it up and it's a Roman structure. So there was Romans there that built this in 200 AD. Um, and the floor literally says, Jesus is God. 100 years before Constantine ever said Christianity was illegal. And if you guys aren't good at math, that means Constantine wasn't born yet. Okay, he was just a twinkle in his mama's eye. She, I don't think she was born yet. Don't quote me on that. So we have to understand the inheritance that's been laid before us. Otherwise, we go through seasons and times where the power of God is stripped out of the church and we have to rebuild it and rediscover it once again. We have to archaeologically dig to find out and go, oh, it was this way. The fact that we have to dig archaeological sites to discover that God has never stopped pouring out his power and his love and his presence on his people is pathetic. It's an indictment on the church and the way that we inherit that we have not passed down our legacy. Someone said to me, so you're really a Jew? Like, you know, like a Jew? Yeah, yeah, like a real life Jew. Like the blood of Jews. People ask me, what, what's your ethnicity? I'm a Jew. I'm an ethnically a Jew. And they said, well, like, do you know your history? Yes, I do. I know that my family fled Austria before World War I. We fled and came to America. We fled Austria when all of that conflict with Germany was, was stirring up. And my family fled Austria. I also know that my family, thousands of years ago, actually traded merchant. They were merchants that traded on the Silk Road to China. They were Jewish merchants that traded on the Silk Road. I know that about my family. So that's our history. So a little bit of sales is in my blood. That's why I did good at business. 
So I know my family history. You cannot take my inheritance away from me. I know it. But so many of us don't understand church family history. We don't have inheritance built into us. And we need to understand that. And in order to do that, we have to begin to search out the mysteries of God and pass those mysteries on. Amen? We have to be committed to discovering the things that have been left buried that previous generations did not pass on. And we need to do better, church. We need to dig it up explore it, step into it, and pass it on, and make sure that generations know what God has done, and you can't silence it. Amen? Come on, you guys got to get a little louder than that. You guys are, I, I, I promise you, I'm going to trade you for a rowdy church. I'm going to, so you guys better be a rowdy church. I'm going to go preach somewhere, and they're going to get super rowdy, and I'm just not coming home, so you guys need to get rowdy. You're like, fine, we don't care anyways. <laughs> Proverbs 25.2 says this. It's the glory of God to conceal a matter, but the glory of kings to search out a matter. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. Why did Jesus talk in parables? So people could understand it? No, so they wouldn't. I want you to catch this. Jesus talked in parables so some would be confused. Why? Because of this scripture right here. It's the glory of God to conceal a matter. Parables concealed truths many layers down. But it is the glory of kings to search a matter out. God has not called you to be a peasant. He's called you to be a king. He calls you an heir to the throne. You need to start searching out a matter. Don't be worried that something is concealed to you. Just recognize, ooh, I don't know what's in this box. I'm a king. I'm going to search it out. And begin to get your inheritance. Matthew 13, 10 through 12 says this. Matthew 13, 10 through 12. If you're taking notes, I'll slow down just a tiny bit. And the disciples came to him and said, why do you speak to them in parables? Jesus answered them. To you, it's been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them, it has not been granted. For whoever has, to him more shall be given. And he will have an abundance, but whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. I want you to understand what God is saying. He's not saying, because no one ever gave you something, I'm going to take everything you have. He's not being a mean God. Jesus is not being cruel here. He's saying it's for a matter of kings to search a matter out. He wants you to search it. But those unwilling to search because they have not dug, because they have not searched, eventually time will erode what they did receive. That if you, those that search the mystery, that plow the ground, that dig the well, it will be available for generations. Jesus came to the woman at the well. What well? Jacob's well. It was not her well. It was not the Samaritan's well. It was Jacob's well. He dug that well. And generations later, we're receiving water. And Jesus said, I am the living water. That there is a well that we need to dig to leave to generations. But what happens is, is that if we don't search out mysteries, if we don't walk into inheritance, we leave nothing behind. It gets stripped away from us because we have not plowed the ground. What do I mean by that? Real simple. I went to PA this last week. I have nine acres of land. Okay. And it's about that time of year where when you go to PA, when you go to Pennsylvania for a whole week and you come back, there's a whole lot of mowing to do. I got nine acres. So my process for reading my Bible a lot of times is put on my headphones, play the Bible, and just listen and mow. 
Y'all, I read all of Acts and five chapters in Romans before I was like, I'm done mowing for today. That's a lot of Bible. That's a lot of mowing. Why? Because my land was overgrown because I was not there to care for it. What I had was being taken away from me and slowly going back to nature. What I had cultivated was being reclaimed by this world. What you leave alone will always be reclaimed by this world. You have to cultivate the presence of God. You have to cultivate God's glory in your life. You have to cultivate the word of God in your life. You have to cultivate the promises of God or the world will take them back. See, we need to understand this is that God gave a promise to the Israelites of a promised land, but he did not give them the whole land at once. Why? Because they weren't able to cultivate all of it at once. They had to move in and take care of it little by little. Any of you guys ever gone to like Mexico and gone to like the Aztec ruins or any of that? There's a reason why they call them ruins. Because nobody has cared for them in so long that they have fallen into disrepair. And the church is just as much subject to that in the supernatural as we have in the natural. We cannot allow the territory that God has given to us to fall into disrepair because we simply ignore the power of God in it. Let, let me say this to you because we need to understand this. Occupation is always harder than advancement. Occupation is always harder than advancement. Advancement means going in and taking things. But occupation means caring for them. Raising them up, building, stewarding, right? I can buy a house, but then I got to mow that house. You, anybody want to come weed whack my nine acres for me? William's always down. That's why I respect him. William's like, I get on that mower of yours. He thinks he's driving a car. He thinks it's great. So uh, occupation is always harder than advancement. So a lot of times we'll advance into things, but what happens is we'll advance into it and then we withdraw out of the territory and we lose the territory that we've gained because we're simply not able to occupy correctly. I mean, all you have to do is look at American recent political history to understand that, right? We go into these areas and we advance and we win, right? My soldiers, I got some soldiers over here. I've heard a lot of the soldier stories about going into areas over your terms. You've gone in, you've gone and advanced and you guys won. I mean, you kicked some serious butt, okay? You won, you did the mission, you got it done. And then your fighting, your advancement is done. And now there's people that got to go in there and manage that. And our soldiers get very frustrated because they've gone in and they've done their job of advancing and then other people don't occupy well. Am I right? Does that make sense? I'm not getting political. I'm just making a point. You, you can have any opinion about occupying advancement or war or any. I'm not making that argument. I'm just saying this is a fact. We go in, we win, and then nothing happens. There is no skilled plan for occupation or advancement or nation building or whatever you want to call, whatever it should be. You can have an opinion. We shouldn't go. I don't care about the opinion. I'm just making a point about the idea of advancement and occupation, okay? And so I'm saying that it's frustrating to a soldier that says this was my mission and then you didn't do your job after. And so advancement is always easier than occupation. So I came home from PA and my land was overgrown and I'm like, oof. Occupying this is tough. I'm a busy man and mowing is not on the agenda. 
But so here's what happens. God has created this really special, unique, powerful way in which he helps you to hold on to what God has promised you. Are you ready for this? If you want the secret for allowing things that you are not quite ready to occupy to be cared for and kept, mowed and weed whacked, edged and in repair, the promises of God that he has built for you that are inherited in your future, but you are not ready yet to occupy that. Let me tell you his secret strategy for helping you to occupy, to helping you to keep that from becoming an ancient ruin. Are you ready? Enemies. God has given you enemies as grace on your life so they can care for what you cannot keep. Some of you are quiet right now. You're like, what the heck is he saying right now? I don't get it. You, you see, they entered a promised land that had cities and walls that were kept. They weren't cracked. They weren't eroded. They weren't denigrated because God didn't just promise them a land, but he gave them cities with it. Enemies that occupied their territories kept it in repair until God was ready to give it to them. Let me show that to you in the Word. You get it in Israel. Let me show it to you in a different place in the supernatural. You ready for this? Luke eleven twenty four. 24. I'm going to read this to you. Let me open it up with you. Luke eleven twenty four. 24. I want you to turn there if you have your Word. Starting with verse 24. Jesus is giving a word about this. When the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and not finding any. It says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it swept and put in order. Then it goes and takes along seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they go in and live there. And the last state of the man becomes worse than the first. What you cannot occupy will always become occupied by the enemy. This is the example. This is a scripture on deliverance. A man has had an unclean spirit in him. It has come out. His house is clean, it's swept, and it's ordered, but it is not filled. Whatever you have that God gives you that you do not fill up will always be filled by an enemy instead. Because the order is this. Lest it fall into ruin, at least they're keeping it up. God's desire is for you to occupy the promises of inheritance. That's his, that's his, that's his desire. But if you will not occupy it, an enemy will. So you need to make a decision. Do you want an enemy to occupy your promises? Or will you become a people of advancement and inheritance? advancement and inheritance. The inheritance secures the promise without the enemy having to occupy. Amen? If there are areas in your life that the enemy is occupying, it's because you left them vacant. You did not fill them up with his presence. You did not put the power of God into your life. You did not activate it. Your career is a little hollow. Seems like everyone around you is an enemy. Start putting God into your career. Start filling it up with the presence of God. Start purpose, being purposeful in occupying that territory. Well, I'm just here. So many of us, we go through life and we have jobs and we work and we're, ju we, we're just doing that job to exist. We're not advancing and we're not occupying. 
we need to occupy. Amen? Amen. Someone needs to say amen. amen. I will preach twice as long. I'm preaching till you get it, so you just let me know when you're there. You're like, oh, we, we didn't know the rules. We didn't know that was how it worked. Some of you don't get it. It's like, well, we're, no one's crying. I better keep going. So I want you to get it. God grew a kingdom so there would be a king to search out the mysteries concealed. Some of you need to hear that. The reason God grew a kingdom is so there would be a king to search out the mysteries. If it's a matter of kings to search out a mystery, then he needed a king. If he needed a king, he needed a kingdom. So he gave them a kingdom so they could become kings, so they could search out a mystery. The word says that Solomon's temple had more glory than David's tabernacle. Did you know that? So David the king builds a tabernacle and Solomon comes as his son and builds a temple. So he takes the inheritance of his father's tabernacle and he builds something greater. It is the matter of kings to search out a mystery and develop it. So he was able to build off of what his father built and build something greater than what his father did. Why was Solomon able to sit around all day and write Proverbs? And think deep, mysterious thoughts. It says that Solomon was the wisest man on earth. Why was Solomon the wisest man? Because his father was the baddest man on earth. Because his father cleared out all the enemies so Solomon could think deep thoughts. When a man has no enemies, he's able to go deeper. That's the inheritance, lest his son should have to fight off the same enemies because no inheritance was left by David. That's why Saul was told, wipe them all out. Otherwise, David's going to have to deal with them. David, wipe them all out. Otherwise, Solomon's going to have to deal with them. And he's never going to be able to build on precept upon precept. He's never going to be able to go from glory to glory because he's always trying to recapture the same glory you lost. We need to be a people that hold on to territory. I said this this last week. You know, Paul went around and evangelized most of the known world. He went into areas and turned them Christian. But there was one time where on mission where he was going to Rome, he got sidetracked by a little storm that broke his ship, but it did not kill him. He was shipwrecked, but not dead. Somebody say, I might be shipwrecked, but I'm not dead. He landed on an island called Malta. Everyone say Malta. Anybody know that place? It was an accidental landing. But since he was there, he decided, you know what? I might as well be who I'm called to be and be on mission instead of vacation. And he decided to evangelize Malta. Do you know that one of the places that Paul evangelized was the nation of Turkey? Did you know that? The nation of Turkey was once all Christian. In fact, a lot of Europe was once all all Christian. And now some of it's gone secular and Turkey is all Muslim. Every bit of territory that Paul gained when we read the gospel was lost. And there is a generation having to go back and start over and not able to build on what was planted there because it's been plowed up. It has been left in ruin. The Christian legacy of Turkey is ruined. But I'll tell you this, the island of Malta, the accidental landing, is statistically the most Christian nation on the face of the earth. It has a 98% confessing Christian percentage. And that's not, you know, 85% of all statistics are made up. That one is not. That's the truth. 
98% of the island of Malta confesses Jesus. The accidental landing. He held on to territory that could be built up. What would happen to the church? What would happen to our lives if we started to build on what other people had already unlocked for us? And we stop every generation recycling and relearning and regrowing and rebuilding things that have been torn down because we did not pass them on in repair. We abandoned them to enemies. Thank you, Lord, that you let enemies occupy areas until we're ready to take them lest they fall into ruin. But Lord, I want to occupy what you promised me and I want my family to occupy what I've been given and I want to leave a legacy to my family. The word of God tells me that a righteous man leaves an inheritance to his children and the church needs to be a righteous bride and leave an inheritance to its children and next generation. So Solomon built the temple and the word of God says that the latter shall be greater than the former. So Solomon's temple was 10 times the glory of David's temple. But the word of God tells us there was a, there was a Pentecost. There was a moment where the fire of God came raining down on the earth. The fire came raining down on the earth, but the word of God tells us when we read the end that a greater fire is coming, that something more glorious than Pentecost is coming. There is another Pentecost coming. There is another fire coming on the church, and it will be like David's tabernacle to Solomon's temple. The former will be less than the latter. The latter will be greater than the former. We're about to see a move of God greater than what we read about in the book of Acts. That's what we want to see. Dead raised, just a Tuesday. Did you, did you know that Hebrews chapter 11 says that the dead raised is just a Tuesday? That's the REN translation, excuse me. What it says is this, we should move past the elementary things like raising the dead and healing. Those are elementary. What does God have as an inheritance for us if we would just simply stop having to start over again? What could we accomplish? This might be the only generation that's been on the face of the earth where we might learn from the previous generation and grow it. We have that opportunity, but we cannot simply neglect what the previous generation walked in. Oklahoma City, Oklahoma in general, has wells of healing revivals that have busted out across this place. We have men and women of God that have inheritance they've left for us. Rhema, Catherine Coleman coming here. All these healing anointings, healing movements that happen here. We can't forget what happened because we have to build on what happened. We cannot simply remove the bottom stone and think somehow we're building a wall. Every stone becomes just, look, I'm not saying what happened then is less important. It becomes a foundational stone. Every stone is the same, but every time you stack a stone, the wall gets higher. That's how it works. And we need to learn to stack a stone lest we never build a kingdom. We want to build a kingdom, but we want to keep working on the foundation every generation, every generation. We're coming into a Solomon temple era. We're coming into a second Pentecost where the glory of God is pouring out in greater measure. I read the word, a greater glory is coming than even Pentecost. Because we go from glory to glory. I'm going to close with this. But if we don't claim the inheritance of the previous moves of God, then we will find that the church is guilty of spiritual gluttony. We don't plant, we just consume. We don't save for an inheritance, we take it all for ourselves, we take it to the grave. That's spiritual gluttony. And I believe that that lack of being able to pass that on 
So there's two things that need to happen. We need to grab hold of the previous glory as our inheritance. We can't just simply neglect what's been handed to us and promised to us. So there are two sins that the church commits. One is that we don't pass anything on. And one is that we don't claim what's ours. We are called to advance. Standing in a desert when we are called to a promised land is not obedience. Staying where it's complacent is not comfort. Going back into Egypt because it was easier is not obedience. For many of us, it is easier to sit around and complain about our Egypt than it is to move into our promise. We need to grab hold of the previous and pass it on to the next. Some of you have had God move in mighty ways in your life. And you've spent your entire life trying to duplicate those moments instead of build on it. God is not doing an old thing. I have never read in the word where he says, behold, I do an old thing. He's doing a new thing. Look, he's the same yesterday, today, forever. The stones look a lot similar, but they build something unique. He is building something new. We are in a season of latter rain, a Nehemiah season where each brick builds on the other one to go higher. Don't be spiritually afraid of heights. Don't be scared to build what God has called you to build. I'm saying this to you. You don't have to be leaders. You don't have to be pastors. God has called you to something. It's time to build it. Amen. God has called you to something. It's time to claim it. Stop thinking the inheritance is for everyone else but you. It's for a matter of kings to search a thing out. Well, I'm not a king. Yes, you are. You are a royal priesthood, a chosen generation. Is there anyone in here that would rather just be a slave? You'd rather go back to Egypt where it's complacent and easy than walk into something that's difficult but has the comforter there. You want to be comfy? Then get as close to God as possible and go to war. Men, rise up. The gospel is not just ooey-gooey love. Your core value is respect. There is honor in you. And we need to be a culture of honor. Let me ask you this. Shouldn't the church be the place where respect is most, is most demonstrated? Where honor is most demonstrated? Where we honor one another, serve one another, fight with one another. Where we are men of valor. Where we love our families. Women, Jesus loves you. You know that. Your husbands need your respect so that they can rise into who they're called to be. Well, he's just not as in love with Jesus as I am. That's okay. It looks different to him. What you call in love looks different than him. You know, most women I meet, they, when, when I ask them who their favorite of the Trinity is, they usually have a leaning towards part of the Godhead. So, you know, uh, my charismatics, they, they'll go with Holy Spirit. But if you ask anyone outside, just like the, the fire of God people, it's always Jesus. It's always Jesus. Our ladies love that he's the groom, that he loves them. They sacrificed for him. They served him. They love it. But for me, I so 
resonate with the Father. Because I'm always like, Dad, did I do good? Am I a good son? Did I make you proud? Are you happy with what I did? And Dad's like, you're a good, good son. He's a good, good father, but I'm a good, good son. I'm a good, good son. What did he say to Jesus when the Holy Spirit came down? He got comforted. How did, how did Holy Spirit comfort Jesus? This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Respect. God loves you, ladies. And God honors you, men. And he's given you inheritance to advance into. So I want to give you back your identity, that core need that you have to be respected. To be recognized that the power of God lives inside of you. And you can transform your world into promises and inheritance. Amen? Bow your heads with me. Father God, thank you for your word today. Thank you for your plan. I declare, Lord, that you are meeting our needs. That you are advancing the kingdom. That you are taking us into greater realms of authority, of purpose. So, Lord, I declare the inheritance laid up for the saints is released on the body of Christ right now. That your love and honor and power are in our possession. And, Lord, we will not have to rebuild what generations did. We will not let it fall into ruin. But, Father, we declare for every inheritance left to us, we will occupy and for every area we have not stepped into, for every area we occupy, we declare it as a landing place for us to advance into more promise. So Lord, we will stage the next advance by occupying the current received promise. So Lord, we declare as we advance, Father, we go with your power. We go with Holy Spirit. We go with authority, with the mysteries of the kingdom of God built in our lives. So we take it with us in the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. We want to pray for you. Send us a message with your prayer requests through Facebook or email and let us know how we can pray for you today. Also, let us know how this message impacted your life. I love you. God loves you. Shalom.